Chapter 5. The Rich Man and Lazarus and the Thief on the Cross More than any other passage of Scripture, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus can be assimilated to the popular teaching that punishment and reward are handed out to the dead before the resurrection. Yet the very idea of the fate of the wicked being sealed and their punishment being meted out before judgment has been pronounced incoherent. Scripture confers immortality upon no one and consigns none of the dead to judgment apart from resurrection. We find that in John 5, verse 28 and 29, Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15. Professor George Ladd notes that, quote, there is one teaching in this passage, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, which contradicts the total biblical teaching about the intermediate state, namely that judgment and reward take place immediately after death. Elsewhere, says George Ladd, judgment always occurs at the second coming. That's from his book, The Last Things. Non-biblical presuppositions. The story of Lazarus and the rich man can, in fact, be read from two entirely different viewpoints. Everything depends upon what presuppositions are brought to bear upon this intriguing section of Scripture. While borrowing some of the contemporary Pharisaic terminology, Jesus does not actually subscribe to the non-biblical sources the Pharisees had embraced under the influence of Greek thinking. We approach the parable firmly convinced by the Old Testament that Hades is not at present a place of torment for wicked human spirits and that a conscious human spirit, deprived of its body, is unthinkable for the biblical writers. Hades in the future may indeed become a place of punishment, as in Psalm 9, verse 17. The opening words, now there was a certain man, remind us of the story of the prodigal son and the parable of the unjust steward, which begin with the same phrase and caution us that we're dealing with a story with a moral rather than a straight discourse on eschatology. It is inconceivable, says F.W. Farrar in the Smith's Dictionary of the Bible, quote, to ground the proof of an important theological doctrine on a passage which confessedly abounds in Jewish metaphor. G.M. Gwatkin, in his book, The Eye for Spiritual Things, wrote about this passage of Lazarus and the rich man, let me only warn you that parable is parable and not literal fact. It is good for the lesson our Lord means to teach, but we cannot take for granted that he means to teach everything he seems to say. For example, that in paradise we shall sit in Abraham's lap. 
A Regis professor of Hebrew expressed a similar view. I quote, To suppose it to be our Lord's object here, in the parable of Lazarus, to give a doctrine of the intermediate state is entirely to misunderstand the parable. That's a quotation from Dr. C.H. Wright in his book, The Intermediate State. How rarely have these warnings been heeded? In their teaching about future punishment, the Pharisees had revolutionized the thinking of the Old Testament by absorbing the same Platonic philosophy which lies at the root of so much of our own theology. Several of the apocryphal and pseudepigraphal books show that Sheol, Hades of Scripture, had become an animated abode of disembodied spirits. Contrary to the Old Testament description of the grave as a place, quote, where there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom, as we read in Ecclesiastes 9, verse 10, and where the dead go down into silence and know nothing at all, as we read in Ecclesiastes 9, verse 5, while they sleep in the dust, Daniel 12, verse 2. The Pharisees had divided Sheol, or Hades, into two compartments to accommodate the righteous, quote, in Abraham's bosom, and the wicked undergoing curses and scourges and torments, according to 1 Enoch 22, 9-13. There are clear points of contact between the language of the parable in Luke and the later teaching of the Pharisees. Yet despite the borrowings of phraseology, the parable nowhere, in fact, specifically states that the scenes of reward and punishment described in verses 22 to 26 occur before the resurrection. Though the story may be made to fit the platonic system of immediate survival at death, it is highly significant that Lazarus and the rich man are not seen as disembodied spirits or souls, but the parable as to say at least verses 19 to 26, may also be read quite satisfactorily with the biblical scheme in mind. We do not therefore need to say that Jesus, quote, accommodated his story to the Pharisaic doctrine of the afterlife. An exact program of events is in any case hardly to be expected in a parable. Its purpose lies elsewhere. To use this story alone, as the basis of one's understanding of what happens at death when so much clear instruction is given elsewhere in Scripture is scarcely justifiable. The Messianic Banquet If we read with the biblical eschatology in mind, we shall understand the reference to the poor man's being carried into the bosom of Abraham as parallel to the angels gathering the faithful into the kingdom of God and the messianic banquet at the second coming. Matthew 24, verse 31, and Luke 14, verse 15, where they will indeed recline with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the faithful. Matthew 8, verse 11. This reward is placed by Jesus 
quote, at the resurrection of the just, Luke 14, verse 14. It would be very unwise to suggest, on the basis of our story, that Luke now places the reward at the moment of death. The burial of the rich man is followed by his, quote, lifting up his eyes. Can this be a veiled reference to opening eyes in resurrection? Followed by his suffering torment in the flame. Luke 16, verse 24. Here we are reminded that, quote, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God at the second coming and yourselves cast out. Luke 13, verse 28. Perhaps even verse 23 falls short of stating clearly that the torment was experienced in Hades, though it could be read in that sense. It is interesting that some texts, including the Vulgate, join the words in Hades to the words was buried. In other words, was buried in Hades. And then they begin a new sentence with having lifted up his eyes. That's to say, et sepultus est in inferno, elevans autem oculos suos. On that reading, there would be nothing to suggest that Hades was a place of torment. If, however, torment is to be associated with Hades, then a reference to the lake of fire, the second death, a place of punishment, may be intended, as in Revelation 20, verse 14. In that passage, the first death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire, which is then known as the second death. The second death, unlike the first, is indeed a place of retribution associated even with torment, as we read in Revelation 14, verse 10, and Revelation 20, verse 10. Though nothing is said of eternal torment, it may well be that Jesus alludes to the new Hades of the second death, the new world of the dead, which is quite distinct from the Hades of the first death, which is throughout Scripture a place of rest and silence and inactivity for good and bad alike, and indeed the place to which Jesus himself went when he died, according to Acts 2, verse 31. It is not quite accurate to say that all death is abolished when death and Hades are cast into the lake of fire, Revelation 20, verse 14, for the lake of fire is itself called the second death, Revelation 21, verse 8. And death, therefore, survives in a new form as a place of burning. Poetic imagery. It would, of course, be quite impossible to understand the entire conversation between the dead as poetic imagery similar to the passage in Isaiah 14, verse 11, where the dead are represented as speaking to each other. Now, one need take literally the statement that the slain move and speak. In any case, our parable contains no concession to the Platonic view of survival as a disembodied spirit 
even though the language of the Pharisees is borrowed for effect. Most significant is the mention of eyes, finger, and tongue, showing that there is no indication here of survival as a disembodied, quote, soul, though traditional theology almost always makes its appeal to this story as a basis for the doctrine of the post-mortem intermediate state. Does anyone, however, believe that the rich man could literally communicate with Abraham in heaven? A thoroughly literal reading of the story proves too much. The widespread use of this parable to teach that rewards and punishments follow immediately upon death reflects in our time the major shift in the eschatological picture which began to affect the Christian church as early as the second century under the influence of Greek philosophy. We revert once again to the dictum of Canon Guge, who considered that the infiltration of Roman and Greek ideas into the Christian church represents, quote, a disaster from which we have never recovered either in doctrine or in practice. The transformation of the Christian outlook on the future entailed a dangerous interference with the doctrine of the resurrection and the parousia. The so-called antedating of events which are post-resurrection and parousia, that's to say post-resurrection and post-parousia in the scriptural scheme, led to the collapse of the eschatological structure of the New Testament, thus striking at the very heart of the Christian message of the kingdom of God. The very same tendency to transpose future eschatological events into the present reappears in sectarian theology as a 1914 parousia and in some evangelical circles a so-called pre-tribulation rapture. Doctrine of the survival of the soul at death falls into the same category. So does the persistent liberal tendency to understand the kingdom of God as only a present, quote, reign in the hearts of the believers, rather than with the New Testament as predominantly the eschatological future kingdom to be manifested at the parousia. In every case, the central doctrine of resurrection is under attack, as it was in Paul's day. See 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12, and 2 Timothy 2, verse 18. And with it, the doctrine of the coming of the Messiah in the future to establish his kingdom on earth. The thief on the cross, a single verse in the gospel according to Luke, has been held to provide evidence that Jesus expected an immediate presence in heaven for himself and the thief on the cross on the day of the crucifixion. The insurmountable difficulties involved in such an interpretation 
are seldom considered. Alan Richardson cautions against reading this one verse in a way which contradicts the general New Testament view. You'll find that in his introduction to New Testament theology. E. Earl Ellis warns us likewise that the common interpretation of the thief on the cross, quote, is not in accord with Jesus' teachings elsewhere or with the general New Testament view of man and of death. That's in the New Century Bible Commentary on Luke by Dr. E. Earl Ellis. He then rightly refers us to Luke 20, verses 27 to 40, which shows that life after death for Abraham depends on his future resurrection. According to our translations, Jesus said to the thief, Verily I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Can it really be that we are to understand that Christ was offering the thief a place in heaven into which Christ alone is said to have passed, according to Hebrews 4 verse 14, apart from the resurrection and in advance of all the faithful, including David, who in Acts 2.34 had not ascended into heaven. Indeed, was Jesus himself expecting to be with the Father that day? In view of his statement to the Jews that, quote, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Matthew 12, verse 40. How indeed could Jesus have been in paradise on the day of the crucifixion when, according to the prophecy of his death, cited by Peter, he was in Hades until the resurrection? Acts 2, verse 31. Even on the Sunday of his resurrection, he had not yet ascended to the Father. John 20, verse 17. The attempts which have been made to preserve the traditional scheme intact involve some questionable exegesis. It has been suggested that paradise here was not in the presence of the Father, but in the world of the dead. But the paradise of Scripture is found not in the heart of the earth, but in the restored Garden of Eden, which contains the tree of life. I quote, To him who overcomes, I will give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise garden of God. Revelation 2, verse 7, and Revelation 22, verse 2. No one would propose that the tree of life is growing in the realm of the dead. The solution to the problem posed by Jesus' promise to the thief may indeed well lie in the punctuation of Luke 23, verse 43. George R. Berry, editor of the Interlinear Literal Translation, wrote, quote, there is no authority anywhere in the Greek text for punctuation. The Greek adverb here rendered today, 
appears in the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, and the New Testament 221 times. In 170 of these occurrences, the adverb follows the verb it modifies and often accompanies statements of great solemnity. For example, thus in the Old Testament we have, quote, I say unto you today, I testify to you today. Examples may be found also in Deuteronomy 6, verse 6, chapter 8, verse 11, chapter 10, verse 13, chapter 11, verse 8, and 17 and 23, and also in Deuteronomy 13, verse 8, chapter 19, verse 9, chapter 27, verse 4, and chapter 31, verse 2. It is not unnatural, therefore, that we should punctuate Luke 23, 43, as follows, quote, Truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Paul uses a similar turn of phrase in Acts 20, verse 26, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. A few reasonably early manuscripts of Luke 23, 43 do place the comma in that verse as we suggest. In view of the thief's request, the reply of Jesus makes good sense, so punctuated. He had asked that Jesus remember him when he came in the power of his future kingdom, that is, at the parousia, when the kingdom is to be manifested in glory. The Lord's assertion more than satisfies the thief's request. He assures him that he is remembered on that very day in advance of the future coming of the kingdom. He will indeed be with Jesus in that paradise of the future kingdom. John 11, verse 26. It is sometimes contended that Jesus' statement in John 11:26, quote, he who believes in me shall never die, proves that the dead must come immediately into the presence of God. So translated, the statement is in conflict with the saying which precedes it. I quote, he who believes in me, though he shall have died, shall live. John 5, verse 24, Jesus says that the believer has the life of the coming age. But this does not preclude the need for resurrection at the last day. I quote, This is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who believes in the Son should have the life of the coming age, and I will raise him up at the last day, John 6, verse 40. Resurrection at the last day is associated with the life of the age to come. The resurrection theme recurs as a kind of chorus in verses 39, 44, and 54. The resurrection from the grave to the life of the coming age is clearly taught in John 5, 
verse 29. With these passages in mind, we suggest that John 11, verse 26, should be rendered literally, as is true of A. H. McNeil's rendering in his book, New Testament Teaching in the Light of St. Paul's. Quote, Everyone who lives and believes in me shall not die forever. That's to say the Greek istoniona in the coming age. We have a parallel in John 8.35. The bondman does not remain in the house during the age. Meaning, of course, does not remain forever. Alive before the resurrection? Three further passages of Scripture are sometimes advanced in support of the view that the dead are alive before the resurrection. The episode related in 1 Samuel 28 concerns a so-called appearance of Samuel after his death. There are good reasons for belief that the medium, with the help of a demon spirit, was able to effect an impersonation of Samuel. It makes no sense at all to suppose that, having refused to communicate with Saul by any legitimate means, as we find in 1 Samuel 28.6, the Lord would then speak to him through Samuel, using practices which he had forbidden as an abomination. In any case, Saul saw nothing. It was the medium alone who saw, quote, God's ascending from the earth and, quote, an old man covered with a mantle. The whole story looks like a case of fraud and the comment in 1 Chronicles 10.13, read in the original, suggests that what Saul consulted was the familiar spirit itself rather than, as he thought, the ghost of Samuel. And Samuel, even here, was not a disembodied soul. At the Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah appeared with Jesus. The event is described as a vision, Matthew 17, verse 9. And like John's vision of unfulfilled events in the book of Revelation, it cannot be taken as a statement of the actual survival of Moses and Elijah. It can hardly be that they had been resurrected to immortality in advance of Jesus, the firstfruits. And the writer to the Hebrews thinks of all the Old Testament heroes of faith, including Moses and the prophets, as having died without receiving the promised reward. You'll find that in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 and 39. The transfiguration is understood by Peter to be a vision of the parousia. 2 Peter 1, verses 17 and 18. It is sometimes alleged that the discussion between Jesus and the Sadducees about the resurrection shows that Jesus thought of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as alive before the resurrection. However, this is to miss the point of the Lord's teaching 
His aim was to point to the absolute necessity of resurrection. Since the patriarchs were and are still dead, there must be a future resurrection, for God is not the God of the dead, but of the living, as we read in Matthew chapter 22, verses 29 to 33.